0: Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained, Christians are encouraged, and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you, Jessica. How fitting a song for the message today. The Lord works that out sometimes. We're thankful for that. And we're thankful for all who are here this morning. It's good to have family with us. Don't miss the service tonight if you can at all possible, 5.30 tonight. Joe is going to be sharing his kind of an update on how they are doing and their deputation trail, and they're looking forward with great anticipation getting on the plane tomorrow, going to Chile. I don't know what the temps are in Chile, but they can't be as nice as they are here. I don't know that for sure, but they're going to be looking about neighborhoods where they're going to set up their own home. So pray for God's direction and wisdom and all of that as they leave for about a week or so and then return safely to us. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter number 9, Isaiah 9, and we're going to look at uh, ongoing promise. Last week we started a series called Christmas Promises. Today in the same book that we were last Sunday, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Last week, of course, we, we looked at a... A familiar verse to most of us, and that's from 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Speaking of King Ahaz, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And uh, today's promise is found a little farther down in the book, Isaiah 9.6, if you'll uh, give your attention to this wonderful promise. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, This uh, has a familiar ring if you've heard the tunes of the Messiah, right? For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of Hosts will perform this. Father, we pray for your help in a special way. Thank you for the promises of God that are yea and amen. As we uh, look for, as they look forward to the first advent of Christ, so we look forward to the second coming, the rapture of the church, and then the second coming. Lord, we're grateful for your eternal plan and thank you for including us in it. We're grateful for our time together, Maybe a prophet to us, in Jesus' name, amen. Someone has said, a promise is made to be broken. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, and I don't know if you remember this famous, very famous run-up to a, a presidential campaign, and I haven't included the whole picture of this president-to-be's face, but he had a, 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 an infamous quote some of you remember it if you're old enough to remember this campaign. And remember that little phrase, read my lips, this particular candidate for president said. i got to get my hands out here. No new taxes. Wouldn't that have been wonderful if he could have kept that promise for us? At the time, Michael Dukakis was his opponent. And he had said earlier that he would raise taxes only as a last resort in case of emergency, which in the minds of most Americans meant as the first resort. So, and you have probably figured out who this was if you're a little bit older in our group. Uh, This was, of course, uh, uh, then-candidate George H.W. Bush. In response, he said these infamous, uh, (laughs) infamous words in a speech written by Peggy Noonan, read my lips, no new taxes. Yet, before his first term or year in office was complete, he had already signed into law what they called a stealth budget that although did not raise the income tax, it raised levies and other fees all over the place. Ultimately, it became known as the promise that President George Bush could not keep or at least decided not to keep. Comedian David Letterman said in one of his monologues he should have retracted the comment by saying, read my lips, I'm lying. (laughs) It seems like humans find it very difficult to keep promises. Don't raise your hand. But have you ever broken a promise? Sure, most of us have. We struggle keeping our promises, but God never does. I love this verse. It's found of course, in the Old Testament, Numbers twenty-three, nineteen, here's what it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God never fails. He always keeps his word. Last week, we looked at a promise that was over 700 years old. In fact, This is the same time frame that we're studying today. Today's lesson in the Word comes from the same uh, area or time frame. 734 years before Christ was born, he made the promise that there was a child to be born, a son to be given, and this son would be God with us. And he would put the government on on his shoulders, and he would reign with a rod of iron with righteousness forever and ever on the throne of David. You know, during the A period of time that we don't need to reestablish everything in terms of the context or really the the landscape politically that Isaiah was speaking to to King Ahaz here, but it was a difficult time. And yet we're thankful for the promise to a wicked king, Ahaz of Judah, and to a situation that was full of fear and hate and suspicion and international conflict, idolatry, intrigue. Isaiah 7.14, there's going to be a sign to you, Ahaz. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Hope entered the world by the life of a little boy, the seed of a virgin, the seed of God Himself, this miraculous God man. And do you know what happened? Some 34, 734 years later, the son was born that was promised. Way back in the Old Testament, seven. God knows the future as well as he knows the past and the present. And God said, this is going to happen, and it happened. God fulfills his promise. And I love the story just by way of remembrance. Here came the announcement to a young girl espoused to Joseph 700 some years later. The virgin, or this maiden, had never been with a man physically. So she was amazed at the angel's visit. You remember the story well. And she asked him after the angel proclaimed that she would bear a son. And uh, she said, how can this be? Luke one thirty four. this birth, for I know not a man. That doesn't mean she didn't know any men, but she hadn't been with a man sexually. And so she says this. She had the courage to say, how can this be? This is impossible. But yet with God... But as the Bible say, all things are possible. This came by a supernatural convention. God was keeping a promise made 734 years earlier. God never forgets. God always keeps his promise. Nothing is impossible. This holy child will be called the Son of God. The baby was conceived by supernatural means, and when she was pregnant, Mary, she went to stay or see her, with her cousin Elizabeth, and please grasp the truth of what happened there. Elizabeth said upon her, uh, seeing uh, her cousin Mary come in the door, Luke 1:42 through 45, Mary, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And what is this honor to me, she says. Why would the mother of my Lord come to me? Now, even, even a good Catholic should understand that Elizabeth was already worshiping not the mother, but the Lord in the womb. Elizabeth was worshiping the Christ child, the child of promise. What honor is it that the mother of my Lord still in the womb? When, uh, when of course, Mary came and entered the house here's what Elizabeth said Elizabeth was 6 months pregnant with John the Baptist the forerunner of Christ and here's what she said my baby my baby that i'm carrying heard your voice from the womb she was in the womb next he was in the womb next door excuse that little pun and here's John he leaped with what joy now, it's okay. He's the first Baptist. So I'm going to just throw this in as a sideline. It's okay for a Baptist to get emotional in church once in a while. He leaped for joy. Some of you barely raise your hand. For joy. Why? Because this holy child, yet unborn, was near to him. And so he got so excited. Mary, Luke 1.45, you are blessed for believing God's promise to you. Christmas promises. Forget this. There shall be a performance of those things which were told you from the Lord. God had made a promise through 400 years, excuse me, 734 years earlier, and now he's keeping it. The story of the Old Testament is that God the Messiah was coming. The story of the Gospels, is that he's here. And the story of the epistles, he's coming back for us, and God will always keep his promises. Amen? And so today we look at a, a wonderful promise next door to the one we looked at last week. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We've read it. For unto us a child is born. Some of you can hear the tunes of the Messiah, right, in your brain as these familiar words are read to us. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting. These are names for God, the Prince of Peace. Well, just a couple, three things this morning for you to take home and think about and meditate upon. The gloom that was surrounding or enclosing them. We saw this a bit last week. When we studied this context, no need to rebuild this entirely. Then the light they were promised and the child that made the promise possible. But I wanted to focus in, first of all, on the gloom that enclosed them. Again, we expressed some of this last week, but the condition of God's people to whom Isaiah ministered was difficult. They were living in desperate times. In fact, chapter 8 of Isaiah and verse 22 makes this really come to life, and they shall look upon, this speaking of the, the kind of the political climate, the social climate, the economic climate, and then a, the military situation, they shall look to the earth, and behold, trouble and darkness. And there's a phrase I picked up on, dimness of anguish. I think another translation puts it, the gloom of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. The word dimness is really gloominess. And anguish is simply hopelessness due to enduring sadness without any prospect of change. Maybe some of you this morning are living in a gloomy place in your life. It seems like there's just surrounding darkness that won't ever lift. It may be a physical thing, a relational thing. It may be just a financial thing. It seems like I'm just under a cloud And you know it, and there's a darkness settling in to your life. Certainly, you can relate well to those who are living in this day. So there's three reasons I believe Judah is in a state of gloominess, a condition of low light, little hope, little joy, brokenheartedness. Again, 734 BC, they had been threatened, first of all, by warring neighbors. Remember the context last week. Israel, of course, to the north, and then uh, Syria out to the east were in a confederacy to come and overthrow Judah. And they already had a king picked out that they were going to put on the, on the throne in the place of Ahaz. And so hearts were shaking. Chapter 7, verse 2 says, this, this wonderful pen of Isaiah, he, he says, hearts were shaking like leaves on a tree, the hearts were moved in the hearts of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind, Isaiah two seven two, And it just seemed like the people around were just in fear of what might happen. This alliance between Israel and uh, Syria had threatened them, and there was whisperings of a confederacy against them, and the people were just shaken at the core. The Lord speaks again of this in chapter 8. Verses 11 and 12. Look at those verses with me. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand. Speaking to Isaiah, instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy? To all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Everybody was talking about how overwhelmed they were. And certainly there was a gloominess of spirit at this time the people had so much they thought to fear about the threats of a new king to overthrow ahaz the coming wars around them put us in mind uh, not to the same degree but of international questions that we have even today russia is rumbling warring trying to reassemble and restore the the glory that was past the russian empire north korea is kind of posturing again, missile testing. China is defiant, hungry for growing dominance over Hong Kong. Freedoms are vanishing all under the guise of the Chinese dream, which is to be the great revival of the Chinese nation by revitalizing China's prosperity, socialism, and uh, national glory. Arab nations are always continually foisting their ill will upon each other, and especially Israel. I know that you've picked up on that continuing theme. South America is in a mess. Politically, we see all this jangling and posturing for uh, power politically. Africa is struggling, as is the European community, uh, community looking for leadership. And so is the United States, for that matter, as we see some weakness in our leadership, in many, many ways. And so the world has always been this tumultuous boiling pot of concern to one degree or another. And our world is in a similar mess today. As unrest grows, so does gloom. Gloom rises. Now, I don't know how solid you are as a Christian, but what are you standing on? How do you respond? To the upcoming elections, how do you react to a world always in change where the darkness thickens and gloom personally may occur in your life? What are you standing... What are you, Where's your anchor point? What are you holding on to? As a believer, what are you standing upon? Well, this gloom came because of a political mess. The gloom has advanced, according to the text by a willful negligence of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spake also unto me again, Isaiah, forasmuch as his people, catch this word, refuseth the water of Shiloh that goes softly. This is a kind of a, an illustration, a word for Jerusalem itself, the quiet streams that came through Jerusalem. And rejoice in resin and Remaliah's son, They have turned their attention, the Lord is saying, from the quiet streams that are at home. And they're looking for the powerful, again, in a sense of illustration, the powerful waters of the Euphrates that flowed through Assyria. They're they're looking for outside solutions to the gloom that is rising, and they're not anymore enjoying the streams of living water. And they're drinking from the false waters, are, and these streams will indeed come. Look at verse 7. Now therefore behold, the Lord bringeth upon them the waters of that river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all of his glory. He shall come up over all of his banks or channels and over all the banks. Tributaries, it shall flood. He shall pass even through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck of in fact, Assyria would take Israel into captivity and threaten Judah itself. And so you could see there they're standing neck deep in these waters that they have trusted. The stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. What a slap in the face. God is with you, and yet you're reaching out to foreign help. The gloom is advanced by a willful negligence. They shall refuse the waters of Siloam, and seek rather streams outside of home. I wonder in our lives sometimes if we do the same thing, trusting as we should in God, we turn rather to outside sources of joy and entertainment and hope and strength, both politically and spiritually. These outside sources have no vested interest in Israel or Judah except to destroy it. Why? Look at verse 19 of chapter 8. Wonderful response of God. And they shall say unto you, seek them that have familiar spirits. This is an interesting catalog of various counselors. Seek them that have familiar spirits and the wizards that peep and mutter. Should not a people seek their God for the living to the dead? What's he asking? Instead of coming to me, the fountain of living water, you have gone instead to these outside sources. And not only that, politically, militarily, you have gone to counselors that cannot help you. They're filled with demons. And, uh, and that's a third reason, finally, that they have, they have this rising gloom. They've, politically, they're, they're seeking other sources of help. They're willfully turning away from God. And thirdly, they're going, not just to turning the shoulder to God, now they're going to sources of help that cannot help them. And he says this to them, Why is it that you who have the living God are going instead to those who are necromancers, those that deal with the dead and the spirits of the dead and departed? What are you doing? And he answers, it's because, let's read, uh, continuing on, it's because you have no light in you. Verse 20, why have you turned instead to the law and the testimony? Uh, If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I've a question for all of us this morning. It's a question that comes from the book of Isaiah. To the rising gloom in America, the rising gloom in your life personally, to what extent, to what extent are you forsaking the God that brought you to life, and brought you to light, and how much have your life is spent now following or pursuing forms of satisfaction and entertainment that can hold no power to change, no power to give light or wisdom. An interesting phone call this week from a man who called me and says, I need help. And he said, I, I, my job is falling apart, my relationship with the lady I'd, I'd like to Uh, develop a relationship. It's falling apart. My my relationship with my landlord is falling apart. And uh, this man claims to be a believer. And I said to him, can I just interrupt you for a moment and ask you a question? How much of your life is spent pursuing God? The phone got really quiet. And I had to think because I was as he called, studying this passage. Sometimes God works it out that way. What you had in your devotions this morning is a help in a counsel. I said, tell me, if everything is falling apart in your life, why is it that you're not listening to the one that can give you life and hope and joy and peace? Why is it? Why is it? Isaiah is asking the question. Why is it that you have turned away from the law, do you know, and this is the truth, do you know that when Israel and Judah left the law and the testimony and left the temple, and we talked about that last week, that the tabernacle had really become defunct and the furniture had been rearranged in a sense, and they were worshiping false gods in the very place where God expected them to worship the only true God. And, and why is it that these people who once knew God, forsook God, and started going to the, the seducers, the uh, sorcerers, the witches around them, To get wisdom and get counsel. Why did they do it? When we do that, it's not because we're looking for alternative sources of counsel. Alternative sources of truth. When we do that in our lives, it is because we no longer want the authority of God. That's it. They knew what God was saying. They knew that God would call them back to repentance and to the centrality of true worship, and they didn't want that. And so they left the God that they once loved and pursued those with alternative truths, so to speak, and we know there is no such thing. And yet they did that because there was a resistance in their heart. There there was no light in them. Friend, if you are resisting God, continually rebelling against the truth and ignoring it, neglecting it. Could it be that there is no desire in you for God or His authority? That's a sad place to come. And here it is, God says, they have rejected me and turned to all this list here listed in verse 19, chapter 8, seeking for the living among the dead. There is no desire Light in them. And so we see that third reason God gives Judah for this growing, gathering gloom. They are willfully negligent, seeking answers from gods that are not gods at all, listening to wizards, the dead, walking past the law. In fact, they were ignoring signs to Judah given to the family of Isaiah himself. I don't know if you caught this, but Isaiah. 7 and verse 3, the Lord says, I want you to name your kids so that Judah will catch the idea that there, there's judgment coming. Isaiah 7 and 3, the Lord says, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear-Jashub. Shear-Jashub, thy son. I don't know if that's how they say it or how they said it, but that name means God will spare a remnant only. Now, there's hope in that. God will spare some, but most will ignore God to the point of final departure and slavery away from Israel and Judah. And then the other son was named too. This son was given a name, chapter 8, verse 3. And I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son, then said the Lord to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> How's that? That kid needs a nickname. That's a long name. In fact, it's the longest name given to any man in the Bible. What does that mean? Sha- Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Kind of long name. Hard to say. It simply was a battle cry. This was a battle cry of victory not given to Judah but to Assyria that was soon to come. It simply means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And you're going to hear this in the streets. Israel, you're going to soon hear this in the streets as you are dragged off into captivity because Assyria is coming and this is the sound. My son's name is the sound you will hear continually As the Assyrians take over, the people that you love, the people that you worship, their gods, are coming to destroy you. It is so sad that we don't turn in our hearts uh, while we have an opportunity to love the God who brought us out of captivity in the first place. So there's gloom by political wars. There's gloom by spiritual negligence. Gloom by uh, seeking demons. And uh, the witchcraft around them for wisdom that was not from the Lord. So that's the gloom that enclosed them. My encouragement to all of us today is this if your heart is like this one who called me, so filled with sadness and gloom, I want you to turn back to the Lord while you can. If your life is all out of sorts, turn back to the Lord while you can. Remember Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain coming to the Lord after his offering was refused. He says, I don't feel right. There's a growing depression in my heart. Remember that story? He had offered an offering to the Lord that was, just like these folks were, unacceptable to the Lord. And the Lord's response is, if you don't feel right, and that's a Regeer translation, if, if, if your countenance is fallen, if the gloom is settling, Cain, then sin lieth at the door. That's not always why depression comes, but often it is because we've departed from God and we don't feel right anymore because we're not doing right. When you do right, feelings follow. And so that's my encouragement to all of us. Then the, the light that that was promised to them. This is where the passage turns and it takes a wonderful, hopeful turn. Chapter 9 is so wonderful. These verses that precede the promise that I call the Christmas promise. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as in her vexation. It will not totally enclose when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, through these really encroaching enemies around about. And afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan. There's increasing difficulty militarily for the land of Judah and Israel. But then comes the promise, the people that walked in darkness. What does it say? Have seen a great light. Jessica sang about this. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Has God's light shined upon your heart? Friend, I hope it has. Thou hast multiplied the nation, not increased the joy. The joy that they, shen, they sense before thee, according to the joy in the harvest. And as men rejoice, there's a, there's a wonderful joy in, in harvest and in joy in conquest. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Of course, the story of Gideon and Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this will be a different battle. This shall be with the burning and fuel of fire. They are promised light. My soul craves light. Have any of you ever taken a guided trip into some cave somewhere? And the guide there asked you, once you're way down deep in the cave... A long way from the entrance, will say, "Let's do something." Maybe this didn't happen to you on your trip, but most guides like to pull this on their group. They say, "I want all of you to turn your flashlights off." Has that ever happened to you? <clears throat> happened to us a couple times, and so everybody clicks their lights off, turns their flashlights off, self whatever. And he says, "Now what we're experiencing, experiencing is total darkness." Not just gloom, total darkness. What happens to your heart in those moments? I mean, if the moment goes into two moments and three, and it depends on the guide, right? There's in me this longing for light. I don't want to, come on, give the signal. (laughs) Okay, turn your light. I want light in my life. I want to see light. And there is a wonderful promise. The people that walked in such gloom and darkness have seen a great light. Has that light dawned in your heart? Has it? I hope it has. It's not that the Christian will never experience sadness uh, and heaviness of heart, but it is that there is a great hope in the midst of our shadows, the shadow lands, even the shadow of death. There's always that hope that God, there's that joy that God is in the midst of that. He brings light to our darkness. And this darkness was uh, really began in, in the areas of Galilee. and this, this was the very place <clears throat> excuse me, the very place that God chose to begin His ministry, where it was the darkest. And he decided I'm going to set up shop right there and begin my ministry uh, to my people. And there's, uh, Matthew tells of the people that sat in darkness have seen. A great light. Sin surrounds, darkens, and blinds. Sin dominates, suffocates, traps, and holds hostage. Sin destroys, deceives. So in us there is a longing for the dawn of hope, the dawn of light, of truth. A great light came. Shadows were dispelled, chapter 9, verse 2. They've seen a great light. The land of the shadow of death upon them, the light. Gloom turned to joy. Confusion and chaos gave way to hope and joy. And these verses have really a two part fulfillment. At Christ's first advent, the sky blew up with light. Wouldn't it want to think to be a shepherd that night? You're, uh, you're in the darkness, right? Just night, sky. Maybe a few scars. I, stars up there. I don't know, but when Jesus sent the angels, the Bible says the sky just literally exploded with light. Light is the atmosphere of heaven. There's no need of the sun in heaven because Christ is the light of it. And then we see, of course, uh, the fact that, uh, that there's, a, there's the light spiritually that dawns in our lives as well when the Lord comes in. Thirdly, there's a, another wonderful truth here. Not only the gloom that enclosed them, the light that was promised in chapter 9 and verse 2, there is the prince who performed the promise. I've read these verses a time or two already this morning, but this is a wonderful reminder this, this list of names for this one who's bringing light. Child is given to us, son is given. All these wonderful truths about who the Lord will be, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the child, the Prince who made this promise possible. I love, I have, it's been a while since I've heard the Messiah sung in, in total, all of it together. It's been, I think we went as some teachers and staff a few years ago and I enjoyed it so much. These truths sung. Uh, just is a, a glorious reminder of these names for God. You can almost hear it. For unto us a child is born. Unto us. I like that, don't you? As we look at the child who made the promise possible, it's given, he's given to us. We who sit in darkness, we who are in gloom spiritually, we who needed hope and light, surrounded by fear, God is given to us. For unto us. Unto us a son is given. I like that he's given to us a baby boy. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, his little royal shoulders, the boy king. Why is this so exciting to them? Because for years and years, in fact, Judah had 19 kings and only two of them were any good, so to speak, in their life. They're called good kings for their whole tenure. Israel had Many kings as well, and none of them were qualified as good kings. Can you imagine the idea of a ruler who has no skeletons in his closet, who is going to be pure and clean, a good ruler, for unto us a child is born, and the government shall be on his shoulders. This is exciting because of the complete failure of the political system in those days and in ours as well. Only two Good kings. And this one, finally, a candidate who will not make a promise that he can't keep. A candidate who will be the king of kings and lord of lords, who will rule with impeccable righteousness and impeccable wisdom. This will be this child. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will govern properly. Glory, finally. And he has a name. What is his name? His name is Wonderful Counselor. He will never give counsel or dispel instruction that is not based in truth. And not just truth that is written truth, but truth that's practiced in his life. This will be a leader, as I mentioned before, that no one can point a finger at and say, well, what about that? What about that? What about that broken marriage? What about that issue? This little one that's going to be born unto us, given to us, will be the king of kings. On his shoulder will set the government of all the universe and he will be called the wonderful counselor. Wonderful meaning peerless, without peer, without any rival, exceptional, above and beyond all comparisons. This one will be the wonderful truth dispenser. What a great thing, and they were excited to hear that. The one name above all other names, exceptional, peerless, distinguish in a class of its own. The authority to teach, guide, lead with a voice of truth can be trusted. And then he's called the mighty God. I love this promise. This little baby isn't like any other baby that's coming. He will be the mighty God. He is, he will be, and always has been. He is not just a human. He's not just heroic. He's not just a God that's godlike. He is, in fact, God Himself. We don't understand it, do we? He is God, all God and all man. It's a miracle, this conception and this birth and this person. This places this child to be born in a class never known by any other human king. He is more than godlike. Or great in his nature. A thousand times no. He is the almighty God. He's the everlasting father. Think about that a minute. He is both. Son. And what? Father. How does that happen? This is a glorious truth. To those of us who believe in the trinity. We can't explain it can we? That he is both. God the Son and God the Father, how can this be? No one can fully explain the Trinity. All attempts fail and fall short because it's a miracle. It's a divine and marvelous truth. And it's a fascinating thing, but it should induce joy in our hearts who believe in the truth of the three and one. And we see in the verses here, verses six and seven, he's not only the child, he's the father. He's not only a son, he's the father, the three and one. We are not tri-theists. That is, we don't believe in three gods. We are monotheists. We don't know how it works, but God is a God of three persons, each unique in function, responsibility, to some extent, form, and yet they are one God. When we get to heaven, we'll not see three thrones side by side, but we'll always know that God, when we see him, will be manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God manifest. That little baby that was born to Mary, can you imagine this? Think with me for a minute. That first cry that pierced the night, <clears throat> that little baby was God Himself. God manifested. And yet, God the Spirit is always God working invisible, yet God working immediately upon the creature. And then God the Father super, superintending in the Godhead. We don't understand it, but there's a marvelous truth that this boy that would be born is both a son and the Father God said, "I." Jesus said, I and the Father are what? One. And so this indistinguishable truth Bond between the Trinity is unbelievable, incredible to us, and yet it's a deep truth that must be trusted. Romans 1 7 says the Father is God. Hebrews 1 8 says the Son is God. And Acts 5 3 and 4, the Spirit is God. How can these things be? Well, this is a marvelous child, a wonderful child. He's uh, the everlasting Father. And then he's called the Prince of Peace to a troubled kingdom came the words we close with today. He's the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 2, uh, 1 through 5 says, this Prince of Peace one day, speaking of the millennial period, and this verse kind of encloses all this time period from now till the end of the millennium on into the eternity, of course. But Isaiah 2 says, this Prince of Peace one day will take and rule the world in such a way that all armament, all your weapons will be turned <laughs> into plowshares, and he will take all the spears and turn, turn them into pruning hooks, and there will be a peace that the world has never known because of this coming child, the Messiah. Some, some people say I know in Georgia. It's now, I'm never gonna. You're going to have to pry my fingers off my weapon, bless God. You're never going to take it. One day it will be taken from you as the Prince of Peace. You'll lay it down peacefully as the Prince of Peace. There will be no need because he will rule with total equity, justice, judgment, wisdom, and the world will be in complete control of the Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government. There shall be no end upon the throne of David that will be finally fulfilled when he rules in Jerusalem upon David's throne, on the kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth forever. How will this be accomplished? Well, it won't be your wisdom and your power, and some military force, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He will perform this. Amen and amen, the Christmas promise. Here he comes. He's coming. Be seven hundred years yet, but he's coming, and when he comes, he will be unto us for us, for our redemption, for our deliverance, for our peace. He will be the King of Kings, and yet the Prince of Peace, the Father, and yet the Son, and He will be the mighty God ruling with an with an arm that's righteous, and leading us as no other human king has ever done. And it will be the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will perform this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The question is, have you? Is there darkness in your heart? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace? Is he truly yours? Or are you struggling today understanding the truth? And he came for your justification, for your peace, for your truth, for your light. And God loves you and wants to draw you to himself. Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you.